got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 18. That's where we're going to open. So Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. I'll read it for us. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Well, tonight as we come to you looking at your word, we pray that you would do the work that we cannot do in and of ourselves, that you bring illumination and understanding. We pray that you bring conviction. We pray that you bring affection for you and who you are, your son, and the relationship you have with your son, what you've done for us through him. I want to pray that you clear our minds of all of the distractions, whatever we came here with, the things that have occupied our thoughts and our attention. Lord, I pray for 30 minutes we'd be able to put those to the side and that you would occupy our minds and that for 30 minutes we would look at your word, we would see the truths laid out in it, we would be gripped by them, that they would lay hold of us and hold us. Lord, we pray that as we go through this, what happened when you were on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them as you taught them through Moses and the prophets that all scripture points to you. Lord, tonight let our hearts burn within us as we see you in 2 Corinthians. Lord, we give you ourselves and our time. Pray that you would bless it and use it for your glory and kingdom. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Have any of y'all ever had somebody or a group of friends that you were close to and you left? And the next thing you know, you get back with them or even hear rumors where they're talking bad about you. Or maybe you show up and they've got another friend and they've kind of edged you out of that friend circle. Anybody ever had anything like that happen to you? If you have, then you're going to be really well acquainted with what's laid out in 2 Corinthians. Almost the whole book of 2 Corinthians revolves around Paul writing to the church of Corinth. Because what's happened is a group of people have come into the church at Corinth, which Paul himself started and they, they are declaring themselves as the people that should be listened to. They bring these letters of commendation, their credibility, their credentials. And they start working their way in and working Paul out. So almost the whole book of 2 Corinthians is Paul appealing to the church at Corinth. 
you know, justifying himself, calling out the false apostles, opening up his heart. There's so much in 2 Corinthians where Paul just lays his heart out, just expressing his love and affection for these people. Um, it's a unique book. I've struggled with it because I like the books that get really doctrinal. And Jess will tell you as I'm going through this one, and just over and over and over, Paul saying, I'm talking like a crazy person. I'm talking like a madman. You forced me to it. And if you read the book, you'll see a lot of that. I don't do well with that. I want it to be straight and clear. And there's so much, almost what seems like double talk, but it, it's all from Paul's heart trying to appeal to his, his brothers and sisters and his spiritual children in Corinth. So the whole book revolves around that. And that's one of the main themes. As Paul defends his ministry, apostleship, and gospel, you see it at the very first verse when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And so at the very beginning, like many of his letters, he establishes his apostleship. And that's important because in chapters 11, uh, verse 5 and 12, 11, he calls out these other people that have come in by sarcastically calling them the, the super apostles. And so you see him contrasting himself as a true apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God as if to say, God himself has put me in this position. I don't have to bring a letter of credential from another man. Do you see that? So at the very beginning, he starts out, like many of his letters, establishing that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. In uh, chapter 3, he calls out this commending themselves. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of human hearts. So it's contrasting here, these men coming from outside, bringing pieces of paper, saying how awesome they are. He says, the fact that you exist is my letter of recommendation. So he's doing a contrast there. If we move on uh, to verses four and six, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. And here again, he's calling out that it is God giving in this ministry and, and establishing him as a minister of this new covenant. It's not a piece of paper that a man said how awesome he is. He's saying, God has done this. God gave me this. And it's always God. Even if you go back to the Old Testament, it's always God who anoints. The priesthood didn't anoint themselves. It's God anointing the priesthood. It's always God raising up, calling out. And God does establish the leadership of his church, and he did establish the apostles. Men don't do that. God calls out. So Paul is establishing that right here. And then if you go on to chapter 10, verse 14, Paul reminds them of the very thing that happened, as we just read in Acts 18. He says, For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So the fact that they've got these other people coming in and saying, y'all don't need Paul, and trying to push him out and saying, we're the authorities, y'all should listen to us. Paul reminds them, you wouldn't be there if it was not for me. So Paul establishes very quickly throughout the whole book that, that he is their spiritual father. And he doesn't just stop at establishing himself. He actually turns and he starts to call out the super apostles, as he says, 
in 11.5. Indeed, I consider that I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. with all kinds of sarcasm. And again, in 12.11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. And if we look in chapter 11, verse 12, we see him literally call them out using the term false apostles. He says this in chapter 11, verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And going back to chapter 10, verse 12, we see Paul say this, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, which is exactly what they're doing. If you bring a letter of commendation, who wrote that letter of commendation? A man. And what are they doing? They're saying, this man's better than that man. But it's a man saying it. So Paul's calling out the ridiculousness of this and saying that they're without understanding. And it's a false apostle if you're coming up, waving a piece of paper, saying, this is my credentials. Y'all should listen to me. It's a false apostle doing that. So Paul's calling them out on that. And again, in chapter 10, we see in 17 and 18, Paul say, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And in case you're wondering of some of the things that might have been going on, Paul addresses some of it. He doesn't necessarily tie the two together, but the fact that he addresses it makes me think that he's calling them out for some of the things that they were doing. In chapter 4, we have this starting in verse 2. I love this. Y'all pay attention to some of this language. But we have renounced. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. And it would have been enough for him to stop there. But the problem with stopping there is your mind starts to fill in the gaps. What does he mean by disgraceful and underhanded ways? And Paul knows this, so he goes on, he explains it, and this is what he says. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He spells it out. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. That word cunning is actually used again later on when Paul is talking to them about his fear of them being drawn away like Eve was by the cunning of the serpent. And I don't think it's an accident that he uses that same word to draw attention to the fact that Satan himself, what, used cunning and tampered with God's word. So it's no surprise at all that those who follow Satan would use the same methods. That word cunning is very precise. We use the word cunning for a fox because the fox is cunning. But why is it cunning? It's because it is outsmarting something else. Paul's using the same language here, which is exactly the same language used in Genesis. Satan outsmarts us. False apostles outsmart us. 
All you need to do to be grounded is to know what the Bible says, to know if it's being tampered with. If it's being tampered with, reject it. If you see cunning and clever ploy, reject it. If you know this, you can contrast it with that. So Paul's got a heart for the Corinthian church. Don't listen to them. Reject them. They don't have understanding. They're not following the Lord. They're following Satan, who used cunning in the garden with Eve. So Paul affirms his own self. He calls out the super uh, apostles, as he says. So much of this book, Paul draws attention to his great suffering and affliction. When I was going through my outline, uh, I outlined, I think it was about 39 separate thoughts throughout the book. And I'm probably wrong, but that was just my take on it. About 39 separate thoughts. Uh, probably, I don't know, five, six, seven of them might have been just these, these calling attention to his great affliction. I started labeling them as my outline. God has a wonderful plan for your life. So, but isn't this interesting? Here's Paul, somebody that we look at as a stalwart of the faith, somebody who's suffering, and he goes at a great length to explain it. You know what he's not doing? Talking about the new car he has. He's not doing that. He's not talking about the great wealth that he has. He's not talking about always being healthy. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't talk about the great warmth and friendship of the whole world. None of that. He calls attention to the opposite. I think that that's interesting. Jesus had a similar take on life. He was ridiculed, persecuted, killed by an angry mob, hated at every turn. You know, I think if you follow Jesus, you're probably in for the same. Jesus says as much. So that's something to look at as an indicator. Are you loved by the world? You might be one of them. If the world hates you, you might be a follower of Jesus Christ. To walk in the same footsteps as Christ is to invite the same ridicule and hatred and enmity from the world. And Paul had it in spades. If we look through the book, starting in chapter uh, 1, again flipping back, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of condemnation, the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Does that sound like a wonderful plan for your life? Burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself? That's not happy thoughts. That's not gummy bears and unicorns. That's some serious stuff. That's one real man expressing some pretty deep emotion that he's going through, all for the sake of the gospel. If we move through the book, in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he says this, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, Skip to verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as known and yet unknown, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. 
In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fighting within. And skip ahead to chapter 11, where Paul goes heavy and lays it on thick, recounting all of the hardships that he has faced. Chapter 11, we'll start in verse 23. Paul says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. So he lets us know, and this is where I struggle with the book, over and over he tells them, I'm going to say something that sounds like a crazy person. This is one of those moments. The things he says are true. The reason he's giving is the disclaim, this disclaimer is because he doesn't really want to draw attention to himself. He's doing it because these people have come into the church at Corinth and are trying to edge him out. So he says, hold on. Before you throw me to the curb, look at what God is doing in my life. Before you throw me to the curb, because these people are coming with letters of accommodation, they've got credentials, look at my credentials. And my boast is not in my talents and gifts and credibility. My boast is in what the Lord has done to me. Watch what he says here. In chapter 11, starting in 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul has a litany of all of these things. Now here's what I think that's really interesting. There are some of these events I can pick out in Scripture because I've read them. And I know what he's talking about. One I want to share with you in Acts 14. Because, of course, Paul says, I was, was given the lash, I was beaten with rods. But when he says, I was stoned, my mind goes back to that story. And I want to read it because there's such a, a powerful narrative in that story. When you just say, I was stoned, it loses the power. In chapter 14 of Acts, verse 19, it says this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And pay attention to those two places. They're going to come back up. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra into Iconium, into Antioch. Where did they return? The very place that he was stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. 
verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When Paul's listing these things back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, these are real events. And each one of them have a narrative that when you look at it, it's more powerful when, when you have the full exposure to it. Paul says, I was stoned. He doesn't say, I was stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead. When the other brothers gathered around, I rose up, walked back into the city, stayed there that night, left, preached the gospel probably the next day, and then came back to the city. Think about that for a minute. Paul's given this list of afflictions, and they lose their weight on us. But this was a real man that suffered real abuse for the cause of the kingdom of Christ. For him, it was very, very real. Probably, if you could take one verse, and it'd be the theme verse for the whole of 2 Corinthians, I think it might be, for me anyway, it's probably chapter 12, verse 9. It says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now try to figure out what, what this thought is, why Paul draws so much attention to his weakness. I've really sat on it for a, a few days now. Let me tell a story that I, I think gets the point across. I may be wrong in this. If, you, if you've got two people and they're going to run a race and one of them is gifted, he's a natural runner, he's got a large heart, his lungs have got huge capacity for air and he can run farther than the normal person. He's gifted and he's talented. He's, he's set out to run the race. You have somebody else, and he's diminutive. He's small. His heart's unhealthy. His lungs aren't as strong. His legs aren't powerful. But you have a trainer come inside and say, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to make you something. And at the end of the day, if that weak person is able to run that race, who really gets the credit? Trainer that comes in and that makes something of nothing. Not the person that's gifted. So when Paul is looking at this, this whole group and these, these people are coming in and they're trying to edge him out and they're saying, look at how gifted we are. Paul says, I'm not about that. It's not my gifting. It's the Lord working in me and through me. So over and over he's like, look at the weakness that I have and look at what God has done through that weakness. This makes much of God, not of me. This is why Paul, over and over through the book, is drawing attention to it. Not just for false humility, not for us to say, poor pitiful Paul, but at the end of the day for us to say, wow, God is powerful. God working in us and through us is powerful. Praise God. And it does not matter how gifted you are and how skilled you are, how well you can speak. You know, this goes right along with the scripture that says God chooses the weak things of the world. You know, he doesn't necessarily go to the strong person. And the gospel is foolish to the world that's perishing. The gospel is a simple message. It's not complicated. But to the world, it's, it's so simple that it is foolish. So Paul draws great attention to that, and the whole book is scattered throughout it. 
So that's the theme of 2 Corinthians from beginning to end. It's Paul defending his apostleship, his ministry, his gospel, calling out the false apostles, opening up his heart to his brothers and sisters in Corinth, and finally drawing great attention to his weakness so that God can get the credit. Scattered throughout the book, there's all these verses that I just, when I, when I read them, I thought, I like that. It resonates with me, or maybe it draws my attention to something, or maybe there's a doctrinal element in it that I'll just, I want to know and hold fast. I'm going to go through those. They don't necessarily speak to the theme of the book, and that's fine. We're just going to kind of go through. I've got some thoughts. Uh, starting in chapter 4 is my first one, chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, 7 says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure is the gospel. The treasure is Jesus. The jar of clay is us. Simple, but it serves a purpose because it can hold a treasure. But it in itself is nothing. The treasure is what's valuable. So Paul draws out this comparison. By the way, this is not the first time that Paul has used this example. In Romans 9, chapter 21, he says, Does God not have the right to make out of one lump of clay some vessels prepared for destruction and some prepared for mercy? So Paul has this idea pretty formed in his head. It's, it's a real thing to him. And I love this verse. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And again, the theme of the book, drawing out our weakness so that God can be seen as magnificent. You see it fits right in line. The next one for me is chapter 5, verse 11. And I think there's an element to this that's just, it's true. Paul says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What does he mean? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, we get the gospel wrong so many times. We think it is a gospel that's centered around this love. If I can convey to you how loving God is, you'll accept him. That's a synopsis of the modern day gospel. Let me show you how much I love you so that I will be welcomed by you and you'll accept my message. There's elements of that, that that's true, but it is not the truth. And they're not synonymous. Paul says here, therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What is this fear of the Lord? This is the fear of the Lord when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul is put on his butt by the Lord Jesus saying, Why are you persecuting me? And it's a fear knowing that the God of heaven sees what he is doing and what he is doing is vile and wicked and that a holy just God will judge that. And it's a fear saying, I'm not ready to stand in judgment of that God. I'm not going to last. I can't take that. And so it's fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7 says. It's that fear that turns us away from our sin and wickedness and turns us to the mercy of God. And Paul knows that once you have experienced that, you're very motivated to take that same message to somebody else. And it's a message that, that has traction. As if, you, if you want to do an exercise, we won't do it right now. If you want to do an exercise, start in Proverbs 1.1. See how many times the fear of the Lord's mentioned that first chapter. Go to Proverbs 2. See if it's repeated. Go to Proverbs 3. See if it's repeated. Over and over, you'll start seeing that the fear of the Lord 
is scattered throughout the Proverbs and this wisdom literature over and over. And it will, have, it will always have a context to it. Y'all, y'all go do that sometime. That's, that's worth doing. We're not going to do it now because we're trying to move ahead. If we move to my next verse that I just want to highlight and draw attention to, it's chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Then he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Might not be tomorrow, but you're breathing now. Your heart hasn't stopped. Today is the day that God can save you. Might not be tomorrow. Move on to chapter 7. I love this thought, actually. In chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I want to highlight this for us. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you rob a bank and you're thrown in prison, there's a worldly grief. You, you hate that you got caught. You hate that. But is there really a godly grief that produces repentance? You actually see this with the two thieves on the cross when Jesus is being hung there. Both at some point are hurling abuse. At one point, one falls silent. The other says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other thief calls him out and says, do fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And there you have got the gospel. You have the man of the world ridiculing Jesus and saying, I want what you can give. I think you might could get me off the cross. I think you could take away the penalty of my sin. Can you give me that? The other man says, no, don't you fear God. Since we're all three under the same sentence of condemnation, we're here hanging on crosses to die. We deserve it. We indeed justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then if you remember how this story ends, that first man gets no response from Jesus. The second man says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. So there is a worldly grief where you come to Jesus and say, take away the penalty of sin. But that leads to death. Whereas a godly grief producing repentance is the thought that I deserve to be here. Jesus is sinless. He doesn't. And calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Let's move on. There's in chapter 9, verse 6, there's a principle given that I just want to highlight very quickly. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And the sowing there is the gospel. And it applies in general to anything. If you put a lot of money in the bank, you're going to earn a lot of interest. If you put a little bit of money, you're going to earn a little interest. You spread the gospel once, you got the potential for some gain. You spread it a thousand times, greater gain. Just a principle. 
You can take it and do what you want with it. Let the Lord use that in your life. Now I want to go back because we've highlighted some verses. Now I want to highlight a passage because the whole point of this what, is seeing Jesus through the lens of every book of the Bible, correct? Okay, I want to highlight a passage that takes its thread. If you pull it, if you take this one thread and pull it here in 2 Corinthians, what you'll see is through the tapestry of time, it goes all the way back to Genesis and tugs at the same thread. So y'all follow me on this. Go to, go to chapter 3 with me. This is a longer passage. That's why I put it at the end of this section. Chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 7. And I'll go ahead and give you a little bit of context. The ministry of death, tablets of stone. It's going to be talking about Moses and Mount Sinai when the law was given and what happened to Moses when he was confronted with God. Uh, And then it's going to talk about the new covenant. So starting at verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what is being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away, and you see that on the road to Emmaus, When Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets, start to convey himself through the scriptures, that veil is lifted. Because that's the point. Yes, to this day, picking up in verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we see this going back to Moses when he was confronted with the Lord, his face shone. That face being the light, Paul picks that uh, up. If we move down to chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let Light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. When we read in Genesis, God saying, be light, whatever existed in creation, was it seeking to be light? Did it ask God to be light? Did it want to be light? Or was it content to be whatever it was? It's pretty happy. But God authoritatively, powerfully commanded it to be something else. And it yielded and obeyed instantly because it had no choice. Its creator commanded it. That picture in Genesis, in verse 3, chapter 1, the third verse in the Bible, when God said, be light, It's the picture of salvation when a dark soul, content in their darkness and sin, 
happy with what they are, hears from outside of their life a voice saying, be light. And that light is Jesus. It is as if Jesus looks at a dark soul and says, Jesus exists there. That person's not asking for it, hoping for it, wanting it. They're not seeking it. It happens to them. Creation benefited from it. We benefit from it because of God's mercy and shedding light in our lives. It's the same thing. You pull this thread in 2 Corinthians, what you get is all the way back in Genesis. That thread tugs. It's throughout all of Scripture, this picture of God working in us. It causes my soul to expand. The same way that I, when I see a beautiful sunset and you're looking at it and you see the colors, your soul expands in you because you're struck with something magnificent. These truths expand my soul in worship of God and He's worthy of it. There's one last thing I want to do for us from 2 Corinthians. I've loved every bit of what I've talked about so far. What I want you to do for me right now is take everything that I've said and put it to the side. In my mind, the book of 2 Corinthians exists for one purpose, and that's for this verse to exist. There is a verse in the book of 2 Corinthians I could, I could live off of for a year. I'm telling you right now, this verse, I want you to remember this verse when you walk out of here. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's the last verse of chapter 5. 521. Go home, dog ear the page in your Bible. Do it now. Like I'm telling you, this verse, I'm going to read it. We're going to talk about it. I want you to hear it. My words speaking it will do nothing unless your ears hear it. So for a few minutes, let's work together and look at this verse. This is what it says. Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's talk about this. Some of the stuff that's obvious, but I'm going to point out so that I can build off of it. He is God. Made him is Jesus. You all know that. That's intuitive. What you didn't connect when we just read it quickly like this is that that's a father and a son and there's a relationship there. So I'm going to connect that for us because that's important moving on. The father and the son, there's a relationship there. Everybody, this is going to hit different. Parents are a hard thing in this world. Most fail you. It's a hard thing being one, I can tell you that. But they exist in a realm that you've understood in your life to be either the greatest thing, most Worst, the worst thing, I don't, I don't know what your relationship with your father is, okay? But for a minute, imagine that there is a perfect father. Maybe not necessarily what you want him to be, but a perfect father. He protects you. He provides for you. He listens to you. He understands you. He spends time with you. You are loved by him. That pales in comparison. It's not even the right example to use to try to get at the heart of what the Father and the Son have. Whatever we have on earth is just the most crude element to try to understand what their relationship is. 
I, I, there's not an example I could say, look at this, this will teach you. We don't have it. But we have what we have, and so I'm appealing to you for a minute to work through this with me. I have a father. I have a son. His name is Micah Daniel Dumas. I love him. There's a bookmark he made for me yesterday. I laminated it today at work. It says, I love daddy. I'm not losing it. I love it. Yesterday when I got home, he says, daddy, can you play Mario with me? When I finished work, we sat and played two levels until the switch died. I loved it. When I get home, he runs from the house. We've got a long driveway. He runs halfway across the yard and meets me. And I stop and I put him in my lap and he drives my truck all the way up to the top. I love him. He makes me happy. I'm proud of him. If y'all knew how mechanically inclined he was, he's he's crazy. He tried a hoverboard for the first time. He's just like sitting there just naturally doing this hoverboard. I'm like, I can't do that. You're six. How are you doing that? I mean, he he makes me happy. Tell me for a second how this makes sense. What if I went to the downtown prison right now? I said, who's the worst criminal you've got in here? Just who's the worst? Maybe, you know, multiple homicides, maybe child rapist, whatever. Give me the worst one. Point him out and say, man, we keep him locked over here. Like, we, we can't handle him. He's in isolation. It's okay, let me, let me add him. So I go over there. This dude's tatted up, scars, looks just completely rough. Like, he owns this world. Like, he's of this world. Like, he doesn't want anything spiritual at all. And I found out, they say, here's what he's done. It's this list. Every crime that could have been committed, he's committed it. I said, man, this guy, I, I'm scared to be outside the cell looking at this guy. Like, he's killed more people than I can count. Tell me what world this makes sense. Would y'all let him out? Hey, Micah, come here. I want you in here. Take that grown man by the hand. March him out. Say, lock my son up. They lock him up. I take that grown man home. Sit him at the table. Feed him. Give him something to drink. Pat him on the back. Rub him. Say, man, I'm proud of you. I love you. So here's where you're sleeping tonight. Take him to my son's bed. Tuck him in. So you got everything you need? I love you, man. I love you. You make me happy. The next day, that man's execution was staged. But he wasn't there. My son was. I go down to the courthouse, and I'm happy that my son, my boy, is being executed while this man sleeps in his bed. What world does that make sense? That's my son. I love him. He makes me happy. And I'm happy that he's being killed. And I'm hugging on the person that should have been killed. So I love you. Proud of you. You make me happy. This doesn't make sense. It's not fair. In the most twisted way, it doesn't even look like love. That's what this verse is. God made Jesus sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know where else to go in Scripture other than this verse. This is it. This is called the great substitution. I don't want you to misunderstand. Jesus did not sin. Jesus didn't commit a sin and thereby become a sinner so that Jesus could judge him. But he was treated as if he was a sinner. And look at what the very beginning of the verse says. For 
our sake. It should have been us, stripped, ridiculed, beaten, crown of thorns, hung on the cross, lungs collapsing, fighting for every breath, while every person in Jerusalem walks by and jeers and says, that person disgusts me. They deserve that. wonder what they did to get there. That should have been us. Otherwise, how is it for our sake? That's not the worst of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the look on my little boy's face when I'm saying, yes, he deserves to die for that sin? Can you imagine the look of betrayal that Micah Daniel would feel if his father did that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment, the physical pain paled in comparison to the judgment of God and his wrath being poured out for all of the sins for everyone who will be saved. Y'all, if any of us actually understood the things that I'm saying, we'd be jumping up and down, and I don't fault you. The point is our minds are so pitiful we can't even understand it. I have over and over looked at this and said, why am I not running in circles? Why am I not jumping up and down? Why am I not excited? Our minds aren't built to even hardly understand this. It flies right through, but we miss it. If we get this much of it, it rolls up and comes out of our eyes in tears. I think if we got it all, we'd stay there. This is such, such a big truth. It's like trying to take the universe in. Our minds don't have capacity for it. But here's what happened. <laughs> For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Can you imagine that? These examples don't do it justice. But imagine, like in this, in this room, we all kind of have a certain look. We all look sort of decent. We've been in places where people didn't look so decent, didn't look trustworthy. Maybe you flinched when they walked by. If you're at an alley and it's a dark alley, and somebody walks by and they don't look like a trustworthy person, kind of flinch away from them, don't you? You have an aversion to a person that's wicked and does not want your best interest, and maybe even has your harm, naturally. Imagine for a minute that you were in that alley, you yourself, and all of a sudden a riot breaks out. And you're a little bit scared. People are punching, people are stabbing. They're just acting with absolute hatred and animosity towards each other. The police show up, gather the whole lot of everybody, yourself included, take you down to the, the police station. Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel out of place? Why? Because you're with really wicked, evil people who are doing really wicked, evil things. You are participating. You did not know that sin. You are apart from it. Can you imagine for a second what Jesus must have felt walking this earth, 
with sin all around him, and in this moment, becoming sin, who knew no sin, taking that full disgusting raiment that is ours and putting him on, putting it on it, and that stench, wicked, vile, detestable, hitting him. I, I can't. Sin to us is like breathing. It's natural. We do it from birth. I can't imagine having never breathed and all of a sudden taking a breath of air and saying, wow, that's what that's like? God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on the behalf on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God I want to finish the same way that Paul did at the end of the letter the last 3 verses he says this finally brothers rejoice aim for restoration comfort one another agree with one another live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot understand even a fraction of this without you intervening in our lives, without you speaking light into our lives, without you for our sake making Jesus sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. Lord, without you intervening on our behalf, that will not happen. Lord, there are souls in this room, young souls, do a work now in their life so that they can serve you their whole life. Do a work now in their life so that they will be drawn to you and have an affection for you and who you are so that they will jump for joy at the truth of what you have done for them. Lord, I pray that you would teach them the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, to turn from evil and turn towards you in obedience. Lord, do that work. Lord, draw us to yourself. Do not leave us to our own devices. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.